This is Good Friday. It's the day that we remember the death of Jesus Christ. You know, in this country, when someone dies, their survivors typically write something called an obituary. An obituary is a short account of their life which expresses those aspects of their life that they're most remembered for. Let me ask you a question. If somebody were to write your obituary, what would it say? What would they say about your life? What would you be remembered for? Well, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he in effect wrote his own obituary. And he did so by taking a very simple Jewish celebration called Passover and transforming it into something that defines the Christian faith. And he said in the process of doing of that transformation that we should do this in remembrance of me. That simple celebration that Jesus instituted that night is his obituary, if you will. It is what he is remembered for. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you're using a pew Bible this evening, it's page 989, Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 29 together, but let me just set a little bit of background as we're jumping in the middle of something here. The events described here in Matthew 26, 26 to 29, took place in the upper room. That was a, a room in the house of a friend, perhaps even the mother of John Mark, as some scholars think, where Jesus and his disciples were going to celebrate the last Passover before his crucifixion. Jesus had previously arranged for them, for them to have the meal in this room, and he had done so in somewhat of a secretive way with a rather unique sign, that is, that John and Peter were to look for a man carrying a jug of water, which would be a most unusual occurrence in Jerusalem. Look for that sign, look for that man, follow him, and he will show you the place where we are to take the meal together. And the reason Jesus did this is because the text tells us that Judas had already made his devilish bargain with the authorities, and he was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so Jesus, not wanting events to outpace themselves, that he was to arrive at the cross at just the right moment, needed to keep this last Passover secretive. And so he did and arranged it in such a way that none of the disciples knew where they were going to meet until they got there. Thus, Judas was unable to betray him early. Now, the celebration of Passover itself is the oldest of Jewish celebrations. It actually predates the Mosaic Law. And by the first century A.D., the typical Passover Seda or order of service went something like the following. The celebrants would gather in a room and they would recline on their left elbow on a cushion surrounding a horseshoe-shaped table that was low to the ground and open at one end. Reclining on their left elbow, they would eat with their right hand. This table was called the triclinium, and it was very common in the Roman world at that time. The ceremony itself included various ritual hand washings and set prayers. 
During the course of the meal, the celebrants would drink four cups of wine. It was a red wine mixed with warm water, two to one. That is two parts water to one part wine. Besides the roasted Paschal lamb, there would be various bitter herbs dipped in salt water. A sweet mixture of apples and nuts and unleavened bread that had been baked into large, crisp, flat cakes. These would be the elements of this Passover meal. Bread throughout the Old Testament celebrating God's provision for His people. The ceremony would be presided over by the father of the home or the host if it wasn't conducted in an immediate family. Jesus Himself occupies the role here for his small band. He is the host of the feast. The actual feast itself was interrupted twice by the singing of what are called the Hallel Psalms. That is Psalm 113 through 118. So that is the background, the context of what is going on here in chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Let me read the text for you. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Twice, Jesus, we're told over in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives his account of the feast, that Jesus told them that they are to do this in remembrance of me, once after the passing of the bread, once after the passing of the cup. My question for you this evening, or series of questions really, is for yourself, what do you do during the passing of the communion elements? What do you do? What are you supposed to do as these things are passed? We're going to be passing them together later in this evening. How are we to fulfill this command, do this in remembrance of me? What does it mean? Well, in this short passage here before us, we find three spiritually strengthening activities that we should undertake when we celebrate communion. Three spiritually strengthening activities that we should undertake when we celebrate communion. First one is in verse 26, and that is that we should recall his sacrifice. Verse 26, we should recall his sacrifice. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, just a couple of things. The breaking of the bread it was just a cultural thing, and it was a mechanical thing as well. It was a means to distribute it among those in attendance at the feast. It speaks nothing about the sacrifice of Christ in the, in the breaking of the bread. In fact, John is very clear to tell us in John 19, verse 36, that not a bone of his was broken. And it could not have been broken because he was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, right? And as the bones of the Passover lamb could not be broken, nor could the bones of Christ. So the breaking of the bread here is to distribute it among the celebrants of the feast. He says, this is my body, Luke twenty-two nineteen adds, which is given for you. Now, 
Again, just clearing something up. The bread did not become Jesus' body. It represented Jesus' body. In fact, grammatically, the bread is masculine, and, or masculine rather, and the this is neuter. When he says in verse 26 that uh, uh, he took the bread, that's in the, in the masculine gender, and he said, take, eat, this is in neuter, is my body. So what he is really saying to them is, that this broken thing represents my body. This broken thing represents my body. The broken bread that is handed out is symbolically standing in for the body of Jesus Christ, representing His body, or more particularly, His sacrificial giving of Himself. Jesus wanted them and us, whenever and wherever they ate the bread, to be reminded that His body was sacrificed for them. Sacrificed for them. Beloved, all of our blessings come through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? It is because of the death of Christ that God is now favorably inclined towards us. Whether that be the physical blessings of common grace, or whether it be the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places, as we are told in Ephesians 1.3, every good and perfect gift comes from God to us, and it comes on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what He has purchased for us. We're sinners. Isn't that true? We are sinners. And God is only favorably disposed towards a sinner because of what Christ has done. It is the sacrifice of Christ through which God's blessing is poured out upon you. So, practically speaking, when we take communion together, what are you to do? Think on the blessings of God. As the communion elements pass through your hands, as you hold the bread in your hand, think on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the blessings of God that it has purchased for you. Make a mental note of those things that God has done for you, what He has secured for you through Christ since the last time you took bread together. Recalling its sacrifice. Secondly, we are to rejoice in the new covenant. The second spiritually strengthening activity is we are to rejoice in the new covenant. Verses 27-28. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This cup was the third of the four cups of the Passover feast. It was known as the cup of blessing. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul refers to it in just that terminology, the cup of blessing. It was this third cup that concluded the eating portion of the feast. So the taking of the third cup concludes the eating of the actual feast itself. And in Luke 22, we're told that after they had eaten, Jesus passed the cup. 1 Corinthians 11:25 it says, after supper... He took the cup. And so this is, we know for sure, the third cup of the four. Now, traditionally, again, in the, in the Jewish Passover, the third cup represented the third of four promises of God given to the people in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. There are four promises there given to the people of God, and the four cups symbolically represent those four promises. And this third cup, this third promise, which was, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. 
So this third cup that Jesus transforms here is this cup of blessing, a cup that, that symbolizes and promises redemption. And notice Jesus said that this is my blood of the covenant. Remember the Mosaic covenant at Sinai? When that covenant was entered into there with the people, blood was sprinkled on both the altar and on the people. Do you remember that? Exodus 24. It was sprinkled on the altar signifying God's faithfulness. It was sprinkled on the people signifying their obedience. Moses refers to it himself as the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. And notice Jesus uses the same terminology here in 28. For this is my blood of the covenant. Blood was necessary for the Mosaic covenant to come. And the reason it was necessary is because it provided atonement for the sin of the people. Isn't that right? Yet there was a problem with that old covenant. The problem was that that blood, that animal blood in the old covenant, never completely dealt with people's sin. It never permanently atoned for their sin. It never permanently granted forgiveness, but covered it over for another year and they would come back again and again and again. And they would sacrifice animal after animal after animal. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that there was a constant reminder of their sin before them. Hebrews 10.4 It says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, a new covenant was needed. A new and better covenant And 600 years before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of just such a covenant. Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there. Jeremiah 31, 31, page 789. There the prophet Jeremiah writes the following. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each again, each man, his neighbor and each man, his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. There are two key features of this new covenant. Two key features that cause us to rejoice, should cause us to rejoice as we Reflect on what Christ has done. The first is the indwelling spirit. The indwelling spirit of God. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. Under the Mosaic covenant, God's law resided externally. It was engraved on tablets of stone. It stood in judgment over the people. But under the new covenant... The law of God now resides within. It is within our heart. We have both the internal motivation and the power necessary to live a life pleasing to God. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, in reference to that new covenant, 
God says, I will put my spirit within you, my spirit within you. Beloved, under the new covenant, the law of God is no longer external. It is within through the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within our hearts. Secondly, the new covenant brings full forgiveness. It brings full forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Remember, under that Mosaic covenant, there was the continual reminder of sin. Day after day, another animal slaughtered his blood sprinkled on the altar. All of the blood and guts going on and on and on. A continual reminder of sin. Every time they slaughtered an animal, there was another animal right behind it that needed to be slaughtered. But now, under the new covenant, one sacrifice takes away the sin of the people for all time, right? Isaiah 53:11 The suffering servant of God will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is something to rejoice in that Jesus Christ has given the one and final sacrifice that is fully sufficient to atone for the sin of his people for all time. Full forgiveness. Full forgiveness in the indwelling spirit of God. Well, that night in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples he was inaugurating this long awaited covenant. Luke 22, verse 20, he says it himself. This is the new covenant in my blood. No mistake here. Jesus says that he is bringing to them, bringing in for the people, the new covenant of God. Well, since this new covenant promises forgiveness of sin. It also requires shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this new covenant could not come without blood itself. The Mosaic covenant came with blood. The new covenant must come with blood too. What a sobering reality that the blood that brought in this covenant was the blood of the Son of God. He Himself brought it. When you take that cup, and you drink, rejoice, rejoice in the fact that the new covenant is no longer future. It is here. It is now. And you, through Christ, are participating fully in it. Forgiveness. Full forgiveness. Now and for eternity. Recall. His sacrifice. Rejoice in the new covenant. Third, spiritually strengthening activity. Reflect upon the coming kingdom. Reflect upon the coming kingdom. Verse 29, do you see it? But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's an amazing statement. The context here is his impending death. He is about to die. And he is about to die in, in, in the most unbelievably agonizing way. And I'm not talking about crucifixion. I'm talking about being the sin bearer of the people of God for all time. Yet in the midst of this agony, 
He offers them a ray of hope. A ray of hope. And he, and he does it through a most solemn future promise. Look at it again, verse 29. But I say to you, but I say to you, Mark says, truly I say to you. Perhaps Jesus said, but I say to you, I mean, truly I say to you. Pay attention. There is a promise coming. A promise of a future reunion. There's going to be a future reunion. Jesus says that He's going to be reunited with them. And when He is reunited with them, they will drink wine. That's what fruit of the vine means. They are going to drink wine together in His Father's kingdom. In His Father's kingdom. But the amazing thing is this not just regular old wine drunk in their regular old way. Look again, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Kainos in the Greek. It means new in quality. Something unused, something unknown, something unheard of. What he is saying is that there is something that you have no experience with. Something beyond the realm of the imagination of the human mind. We're going to drink wine together. And we're going to do it in a celebration that you cannot even conceive of. When this reunion occurs, it is going to be unlike anything they have ever experienced and I might add, it'll be unlike anything you have ever experienced either. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming because the king is returning. Is that right? And when he returns, he will bring his kingdom in. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, it will be a time of disaster and destruction. But for those who do know Christ... It's a time of joy and celebration. The prophets speak everywhere of this coming millennial kingdom. And they speak of the great celebration, the great banquet, the great feast that will occur when Messiah comes in His kingdom. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Luke 13, verse 29. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Beloved, there is a kingdom coming. And with that kingdom, there is a celebration. And at that celebration... The believers will be gathered from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they will come together in Messiah's kingdom, and we will sit down at a banquet together. You can depend on it. Christ promised it here. There is a future joy that awaits us. A future joy. A joy so new, so different, that we cannot even conceive of what it'll be like.
in light of this kind of glorious promise, how then are we to live? How then are we to live? Let me help you answer that question. Let me help you answer that question by asking you another one. Suppose that you were invited to attend a beautiful and lavished wedding. Just a gorgeous affair. And when the wedding ceremony is over, there's going to be a great banquet. Seven course meal, right? You're going to sit down and they're just going to begin to bring the courses of the most scrumptious, rich, delicious food you can possibly imagine. Now my tongue's starting to... I'm not going to describe it. It's going to be better than that. Would you fill up on junk food before you, get, before you went? Before you attended, would you stop by McDonald's and pound down a few hamburgers on the way, a couple of Hershey bars after that, and then a Coca-Cola? Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't. It would be absurd. It would be silly. If you're going to this fantastic affair with this magnificent banquet in which everything you could possibly want and imagine and beyond is going to be provided for you, all of your needs provided for you, satisfaction beyond what you can imagine, why in the world would you stop by McDonald's on the way? You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Here's the hook. then why are you willing to fill your mind, your heart, your body, your soul with the junk food that this world has to offer? Why are you willing to forsake your reservation, your reserved place at the banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in order to fill your belly the spoils of this world. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's no more logical than it would be to have a McDonald's hamburger on the way to the wedding. We're going to partake of these elements soon. As we partake of these elements, reflect. Reflect on the coming kingdom of Christ. And let that realign your priorities. Let that realign your priorities. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You that the invitations have been issued. That the banquet is being prepared. And that someday we will sit at the table with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and enjoy the riches of His kingdom that are unimaginable to us. All of the descriptive language of all of the Scriptures, both old and new, fail to communicate, Father, to us the amazing reality of what is in store for us. And yet, our Father, we are such a stupid people, such a 
thick-headed, hard-hearted people. Far too often we turn aside from that which is awaiting us in glory and settle for the slop of this world. Lord God, as we contemplate the reality of the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, the presence of the new covenant here among us, the reality that His kingdom will be established here on earth and we will be part of it as we recall, rejoice, and reflect on these great truths. Lord, please, please help us to separate ourselves from the things of this world. Lord, change our priorities even now. That we would be a people of God prepared as John says in 1 John, purifying ourselves that we might be ready to see Him when He arrives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.